Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Desire to Destiny. This podcast explores the mystery behind our deepest desires and how we can engage them to become happier human beings. If you missed any of our previous episodes, you can find those posted in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get all future episodes. Now, here's your host, Dr. Mike Larson. A few months ago, I was sitting in the back of another AA meeting, listening to the regular cycle of life-changing stories shared by the speakers that night, when I was suddenly struck by these familiar themes that I would hear over and over again in each and every story. It seemed that it didn't matter what the background was that they came from, what their substance of choice was, or how they hit rock bottom. There were three themes that I noticed each of the speakers held in common that night. The first theme I would say came up in each of the stories was something I might call an infatuation with the substance of choice. Over and over again, the speakers, when they would share about what it was like to first become addicted uh, to alcohol or to their drug of choice, would speak about it in these uh, affectionate terms. They'd almost talk about it like they were falling in love or like they were experiencing their first crush, about the way their heart would flutter, uh, about the way their thoughts would drift towards this, towards the alcohol or towards the drugs and how they couldn't wait for the next encounter they would have. And during this stage, when, when these stories were being shared, many times the room, there would emerge kind of a nervous, knowing laughter from others and a nodding of heads as if to say, yeah, I remember that stage. I remember what it was like to fall in love with this addictive, all-consuming relationship. Now, of course, if that relationship had brought all the, that it initially promised to the participants in it, then they wouldn't be sitting in the AA group that night. And so inevitably, that relationship would lead, that, that kind of feel-good uh, first crush, falling in love would lead to a devastating conclusion of some kind, a turn in the story, the moment of hitting rock bottom, as you would often hear it referred to. And it was at that point, as the story started to turn around, and the speaker would take stock of all the things that they had lost because of this relationship, of all the things that had been damaged, of the things that were now in the past, and some of them they had made amends for, some of them were lost for good, sometimes very meaningful things, careers that had fallen apart, marriages that had fallen apart, um, relationships that were still strained with those that they loved. But this is where the second theme that came up was so surprising. Over and over again, I would hear an expression something like this, even after sharing all the devastation, all the pain, all the heartache, I would hear the speaker say, but I'm actually happy now. I'm actually happy now. Now, if you took the stock of all that was lost and the devastation they had just shared with the group, you'd say, how can you be happy when you see all that was lost? But this is not surprising Not surprising based upon their journey, since the inevitable result, once somebody engages their desires in a healthy direction, is that this happiness begins to emerge. And they had become at peace with themselves and their direction in life, and even some of the consequences of making those mistakes in the past. They were free from the addictive vice of that relationship that had promised so much and given them so little. And now they could actually say, I am happy with my life. And then how this happiness had come about 
was often a surprise to the speaker as much as it was to the listener of these stories. Because over and over again, along with this theme of infatuation, along with this theme of now I'm happy, now that I've broken free from that relationship that promised so much and gave so little, over and over I'd hear people explain that they didn't think that AA and the process that it offered was for them because they weren't really into this higher power and God talk. They felt that they were perfectly fine taking care of life by themselves. Over and over, I would actually hear statements like this. Why can't we just keep God out of this? This was the sentiment that would be expressed of the recovering addict, the recovering alcoholic at the beginning of the journey when someone from AA would ask them about their higher power. And since step two of AA is where the addict comes to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, then you don't get very far in the program without bumping into God. In fact, most of the steps afterwards are built upon the premise that you've now put your belief in this higher power. And since these testimonials that I'm telling you about are from people who were in AA and they were sharing how AA had worked for them, uh, then inevitably... Uh, it turned out they found a higher power that they could believe in, whether it was uh, the Christian God or whether it was the, the science of recovery or whether it was the home group or the rituals of the program itself. They had found some higher power. They had come to the place where they accepted, I need to put my faith in something other than myself. I can't keep God. I can't keep a higher power out of this if I want to find happiness. Now, many in the group would admit that their resistance and their reluctance to engage God or higher power in the process was interfering with their recovery and that they had to take that step to begin the journey of recovery. But this interest in keeping God at a distance is not merely one shared by recovering addicts and alcoholics. In fact, wherever you look, uh, there are people everywhere passionately pursuing their vision of happiness while trying to keep God out of the picture. Take, for example, Edward Luce, columnist and editor at the Financial Times. I've heard many people note how the restrictions of the ongoing pandemic or the different kind of pace to life has actually offered them time for a deeper reflection and introspection. Uh, that it's been a time where they've been able to bring attention to issues that they may not have seen in the regular course of times, whether it was with them personally or throughout their family. Some of these things have just bubbled up to the surface. And some have even described this slowing down as a divine reset of sort, an invitation from God to remind ourselves of what really matters. But this deepening of faith is unsettling to Luce. He argued that when we're looking at the pandemic and how we should resolve it, that we should be considering only the secular challenge handling it without these spiritual considerations. His article, in fact, appealing for this approach, makes his request clear. Let's keep God out of this, shall we? This kind of a sentiment echoes the appeal of those like atheistic evangelist Richard Dawkins. Um, my term for him, not his. Uh, but he's been intent on removing God from school, science, and as much of society as possible. Individuals like Dawkins see religion and belief in God as a blight on humanity. In fact, in his best-selling book uh, from years back called The God Delusion, he 
embraced a so-called scientific approach to demonstrating that the presence of God was highly, highly improbable and therefore encouraged removing God and religion from every walk of life. And it's not just people in the financial sector or scientific theorems that uh, are attempting to push God out. Consider cinematic portrayals like the scene from the movie Jackass, where a costumed devil, a little red devil with tail and all, shoots up from an underground drain with a sign in hand and begins appealing to the citizens on the street, keep God out of California, keep him out of California and leave him to the, quote, other 48 states. There's more than one thing wrong with that request. Anyway, I could go on. But you probably heard sentiments like this expressed before. Maybe you've even said it yourself. It's not just articles, books, or movies where people feel this way. I've encountered people all the time who believe that they need a buffer zone between them and God. And frankly, after listening to their stories, I would say many of these people could be right. As I alluded to in Season 1, Episode 2, There is research that indicates that our belief about God can be harmful to our well-being. Specifically, what, what I quoted at that time was that it's been shown that, quote, religious fear and guilt can evoke feelings of depression and thoughts of suicide, particularly for people who believe they have committed an unforgivable sin, unquote. And I've encountered these individuals many times who cultivate this kind of anxiety and, and fear about God and about their standing with God. This can frequently work its way into people's thinking, especially when they face an illness or another traumatic event. Uh, immediately, they start asking the question, why me? Why would this happen to me? Why would God let this happen to me? Or they lament at how unfair their situation is, and they start to wonder, is God angry at me for something? Is God punishing me for something, for something I've done wrong? And of course, our beliefs in God don't only have the capacity to damage us individually, but they can wreak havoc on our relationships. When somebody embraces consistently the vision of a judgmental, divisive, aggressive, vindictive God, then they tend to embody that in themselves and in the way they relate to others. And if they step in to either assert this view or to defend God with these kinds of approaches, then their anger will stimulate aggressive, defensive responses in those it's directed at. Now, restoring peace and harmony would require an open mind and a willingness to hear others. But the real problem with this anger is that it can blind us to the fact that we're even angry at all. You ever had a conversation with somebody where you said, why are you getting so upset? Or why are you so angry? And they very quickly snap while escalating the language. I'm not angry. I'm not angry. That's the blinding anger that we can experience at times. We can't even see it ourselves. And when we get to that place, it can give us a false sense of certainty, confidence, and optimism about our cherished ideas. We simply cannot see it another way. And the anger continues to perpetuate destroying our relationships along the way. And while a punitive God may at times scare us towards more generous activity, think of uh, the image of a police officer on the side of the freeway 
who encourages you to be a more generous driver and not to engage in the road rage you would like to. Um, A punitive God could have a similar impact on our behavior and at times curb our less generous impulses. But it's been shown that this image over time is particularly damaging to children. It creates an extreme fear of wrongdoing and could have a lot of impact in just adding on layers and layers of shame. And when people have had experiences like these ones, I can understand why in their pursuit of happiness, they may feel the need to distance themselves from God. They might resist or even deny the existence of God. I can understand when uh, fear and anxiety and uncertainty and anger have been the things that you have commonly associated with God that you might ask the question, when you are pursuing that happy life that you desire, can we just keep God out of this? But despite all these legitimate concerns, these, these legitimate reasons to be concerned, faith in God is not actually an overall detriment to humanity. Recent scientific findings overall actually confirm what centuries of transformation stories have attested to. And that is simply this, that a robust faith is actually the foundation to our individual happiness. Now, the results of this research do not indicate that this faith has to be explicitly placed in God. It could be in God, or it could be in science, or it could be a faith that we place in each other, or in ourselves, or in the collective human spirit. Uh, The list goes on and on. It's all that is imagined when somebody says, what's your higher power? And the evidence from science is that this belief, this faith in that higher power can be transformative, can be life-changing for those pursuing happiness. While I recognize the value of this broad application of the word faith, especially in such a diverse uh, culture that we find ourselves in, for the purpose of this podcast, I'm interested more specifically in what that faith in God might look like that becomes a foundation to our individual happiness. How would we relate to that God? How would we perceive that God? How would we pursue that God? And throughout this podcast season, that's what I want to share with you. An image of God and images of God that I believe are worth believing and hoping and trusting and putting your faith in. A God that will be present with you in the ups and the downs, uh, there to console and to comfort, there to guide and direct. A God that is supportive of your pursuit of true, lasting, and fulfilling happiness. And even if you're still maybe wondering, why can't we keep God out of this and the things that we want individually? Why can't we just keep God to the side? I hope you'll give it a chance. I hope you'll stay along for the journey and see if there's not something you discover that you find worth putting your hope and trust and faith into. To help frame this journey, Let me conclude this episode by sharing with you an old Hebrew story about God's self-disclosure. That is, an insight into what God would like us to think about who God is. The setting for this scene is in the wilderness land to the east of Egypt that surrounded Mount Sinai. And this has taken place just after the fabled escape of the children of Israel from out of bondage to the people in Egypt. They had been slaves for a good 400 years, and God had miraculously gone about 
delivering them through signs and wonders, uh, culminating in them being trapped right at the edge of the Red Sea before they were before the waters were split open so that the people of Israel could walk across on dry land to safety. And their captors or their would-be captors, the Egyptian army was swallowed up in the waves that came afterwards. So on the heels of all of these experiences, the people of Israel are now about to meet God at Mount Sinai for the first time. They're going to meet the God that has delivered them in such dramatic fashion that Moses has told them, I have been sent by this God to deliver you, to set you free. And he's preparing the people for the opportunity to actually encounter this God in person. Well, the preparation to meet this God is pretty intense. Um, And the presence of this God is pretty intense. The way it's described in the book of Exodus, God rests on top of the mountain. And the top of the mountain is literally burning from the presence of God. There's lightning, there's thunder coming from it, all these sounds, it's shaking it. And the people are marked off at a distance how close they can get to the mountain because there's just so much power coming from this God that they literally couldn't stand to be in God's presence. Now, honestly, this is not the kind of story that we are accustomed to telling or about God or about our experiences with God. Um, but this would not have been such an outstanding story at the time in the sense of portraying God in this way or even portraying an interaction like this between God and a king. What was more significant was actually the fact that here God was communicating with the entire nation, something that gods didn't do. They talked to royal individuals and to kings, and they relayed their laws and their messages through these distinguished individuals to the rest of the people. But in this particular instance, instead, God comes down, rests on this mountain, shakes it and makes it tremble to the very core of its being, and then speaks to the entire nation for everyone to hear. Now, the very clear implication of this story is that God is actually seeking a personal connection with everyone. What he started with Moses, he now has expanded to an entire nation of reportedly a million or more individuals, men, women, and children, everybody included as a part of it. God is reaching out and seeking that connection. But what happens is after God delivers the 10 words or what most of us know as the 10 commandments, the people say, we can't handle listening to him anymore. Moses, you go up there, you listen to what God has to say, and you bring it to us because we cannot take it. Though God was seeking something different with these people than anybody else believed was possible, they simply said, it's too much. Can't we just keep God at a little bit more of a distance? Now, you might think that this would be upsetting to God, but actually God's not offended at all by this request. It's understandable that people would be overwhelmed by a being that, in their very presence, lights a mountain on fire, makes it shake and tremble to its core, and brings lightning and thunder every time they speak. And so, uh, the request is granted, and Moses is sent as the representative to go up the mountain to receive the actual Ten Commandments engraved by the finger of God and bring them to the people as the story goes. In any case, uh, Moses is up there for 40 days, and somewhere along this time, the people of Israel get really impatient. 
And they need some place now to put this faith, this hope, this optimism that they have placed in God up to this point. There's a void in their life. Yes, they want God at a distance, but they also need somewhere to place that affection, and they have nowhere for it now. So Moses' brother, Aaron, who's left there at the bottom of the mountain, tries to find something to fill that void. And he creates this golden statue shaped like a cow um, and tells the people, this is your God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Worship this God. Now, the children of Israel should have known better at this point. I mean, they just stood there at the bottom of the mountain as they saw the presence of God light it on fire and shake it to its very core. They had just heard the words of God themselves say, you are not to make any of these images of anything and pretend that it's me and then worship it. They knew better, but they couldn't help but feel this need to place their affection somewhere, to be drawn towards something that they could fixate on, even if it was going to be empty in the end. And so they worshiped the idol that was placed before them. They rose up to get drunk, engage in sensual dancing, and potentially other illicit behaviors with one another as a feast to the Lord. And so they traded the presence of God for the pretense of worship. Now, this is understandably upsetting to God because the people asked for distance and what they really were after was infidelity. They were really after betrayal and turning in another direction and just saying, you stay over there, you keep giving us the things that we want to keep us happy, but just kind of stay out of our daily lives, stay out of our business. And so this takes a little bit of sorting through. And it gets to the point where Moses discovers what's happened. He's pretty upset too. He actually takes the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets are on, he breaks them. He goes through camp killing people in the name of God to try to like make up for it. And even, even gets to the point where he says, take my life. Take my life, God, if that's what it takes so that you can save these people. God reassures Moses that this will not be necessary. And after all that the people experience, they start to feel a little bit of remorse, a little bit of sadness. They feel the threat that God will not just be distant, but now completely absent from their lives. And that's a little too far away for them. They still want God to be present in some way. And so they begin this process of mourning and God starts to establish a a way to reconcile the distance between them. And he creates this place called the tent of meeting. It's this little tent that's just outside of the camp that if anybody wanted to go to connect with God, instead of going all the way up on the mountain where it was overwhelming, they could go into this tent and actually connect with God individually one on one. This is yet another attempt for God to reveal the true desire, the true desire that God had to be intimate and connected with every person to develop and cultivate a relationship of trust and faith. And yet when this offer was made out of a million plus people who were a part of that community, only two took God up on it. Moses, the one who had already been at the top of the mountain with God and his mentee, Joshua, the son of Nun. 
And it would be easy to ask, why, why didn't Moore take advantage of this? Why didn't Moore pursue this God that had done so much for them? That had answered the prayers of generations of the people to be liberated uh, from the hands of their taskmasters. That had stepped in in dramatic fashion to spare their lives. That had even forgiven them for these multiple indiscretions and infidelities and times when they turned their back on God. Why weren't more interested in God? But the truth is that we instinctively know. Uh, we know this, that many of us have experienced the, the, the grace and the generosity of, of God in our lives or a, a sense of things in life to be grateful for, even if we don't know who to be grateful to. And yet so many of us take the path of the majority of that community, turn their backs, create distance um, further and further away from God run in a way that says, yeah, keep those blessings coming, keep those good things coming into my life, but I just want to keep a distance. I'm not so sure about who you are or what you might do in my life. So for me, the the more interesting question might actually be, why did the two pursue God the way they did? Why did they keep coming back for more? And I think the answer to that question can be found in the moment when when Moses gets an opportunity on the mountain alone, and he is struggling. He, he wants to fight for these people, and he wants to fight to keep them connected to God. And he sees at the same time, they don't have interest in it. That despite all the good things God has done in the life of Moses and the life of the people, that the people just are so fickle and faint of heart and keep turning their back on God again and again. And Moses is growing discouraged and he finally laments to God and says, you, you haven't even really shown me who you are. I don't even really know who you are that it is that I'm trusting this voice that I'm listening to. Maybe I'm imagining it. Maybe I'm making it up. Maybe this is just all a dream. Why don't you really show me who you are? Why don't you let me know who I'm following and who I'm, who it is that I'm listening to? And God sets up this, uh, this elaborate moment and promises to Moses, I'm, I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to reveal myself to you. You can't see me in my fullness. It would be too much for you, but I will reveal myself. And so he, he sets up this whole scenario where uh, Moses is protected. He's hid in the midst of a rock and God's presence is going to pass by so that Moses can see kind of God as, as God is passing by. And it is in that moment that God offers this self-disclosure, this revelation of who God is. And it reads like this, that when the Lord passed before Moses, the Lord proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This, at the heart of it, was who God was revealed to be to Moses, who Moses would share later in the writing of this story with all that would come after to read it, to say at the core, at the heart of it, is a God 
who is full of compassion and forgiveness and kindness and unlimited positive regard for every one of us. This is the God worth pursuing. This became known as the 13 attributes of God or the 13 attributes of mercy. This self-definition, this self-disclosure of God saying, this is who I am. This is fully who I am that invites you to experience me. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Who doesn't need a God like that? Who doesn't need a presence, a power, a being like that in their corner, fighting for them, fighting with them on their side? And this was who Moses wanted all the people to know. This is who God really is. This is the God that we follow. This is the God who loves us and cares for us. This is the God that we seek to be with and to know more fully. Now, if you really believed that that's who God was, if you were like Moses or like Joshua to say, yeah, yeah, God's heart is for you so strongly. God is in your corner. God has got your back. God is leading the way. God is protecting and comforting and strengthening and with you at every turn. If you really believed that, if you really had trust and faith in that, then why would you want to keep God at a distance? Why would you want to keep God out of your pursuit of happiness? As it turns out, faith ends up being crucial to a life full of meaning and purpose and joy. It's crucial to our well-being. And if you're going to put your faith in God, then it might as well be in a God as good and as compassionate and as beautiful as this one. I hope you'll stay with us over the next seven weeks as we continue to explore what it would mean to put your trust, to put your hope and your faith into a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. And if I'm going to put my faith in God, that's the one I'm believing in. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Desire to Destiny. We hope it inspires your next step on the pathway of happiness. As you go, we'd love to hear from you. Send your comments or questions about the show to desiretodestiny at ramada.org and subscribe to get any future episodes.